Well, if you will turn with me to Ezra, the Old Testament book of Ezra chapter 4, we'll be looking at several verses from the center of that chapter, verses 7, actually verses 6 through 16. It's interesting, different translations divide this passage up in different ways. Some will stop the paragraph at verse 5 and continue from 6 on down to 16. The legacy standard begins the paragraph break, I think, at verse 8 and separates verses 8 through 16. But I'll read the text over us this morning, beginning with verse 6, and then we'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Please remember as I read that these are the actual words of God. Ezra chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. And Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again as we do each week, asking that the worship of you, which was so mightily proclaimed by our voices this morning, would continue. That as we look into your law of liberty, we might find life. That even this morning, there might be some here walking in darkness, 
that as they open this word and look through your gospel, they might find liberty this morning in Jesus Christ and live. Help me as I preach and help your sheep as they listen, that we might all worship you together, learning more what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ and walking humbly in the fear of you and of no other. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Well, many of you know about the communist revolution that took place in Russia during the first decade of the 1900s. What was promised in that revolution was a Garden of Eden-like paradise. Thanks to the military failures of Tsar Nicholas II during World War I, Vladimir Lenin had no trouble running his Viva la Revolution campaign in which he guaranteed an endless supply of the best food, an industrial system that held to the highest standards of production and excellence, and an overall prosperity that went far beyond what you could drum up in a fever dream. As we know today, history tells a different story, at least the history that you and I know. We know that an estimated 94 million civilians were killed under communist regimes in the 20th century, a conservative estimate is that the USSR was responsible for 20 to 25 million of those, though many historians say that number is dramatically low. In addition, millions of people starved, were tortured, deported, silenced, threatened, and imprisoned. And this became a way of life to the Russian people in those days. Of course, it wasn't what they wanted, but it was just going to be that way, and there wasn't really anything that they could do about it. It's interesting to read the communist propaganda spin literature on how things had gone and were getting along in those days. It has been said that the citizens of the USSR, with a heavy tongue-in-cheek, said that they weren't really concerned with what was going to happen tomorrow because they could never be sure what had happened yesterday. Well, today we see a similar sort of reality in the persecution of the people enlisted to rebuild the city of God. Their persecutors were numerous and of a totalitarian my-way-or-the-highway mindset. This next installment of the Battle of Wits that we started last week is a series of letters written to various kings during Persian control of Palestine in which the history of Israel, of Israel is not so accurately represented. Well, I want to give you some additional info this morning about what Ezra is doing in chapter 4 and how he's writing this particular body of his text. You remember that at the beginning of last week's sermon, I mentioned that chapter 4 is written thematically rather than chronologically. Ezra's desire is to show the beginning of the persecution during the reign of Cyrus went all the way up to the reign of Darius, and that's where we concluded last week with verse 5. But then he goes back to Darius again in verse 24. So he's back in time. He'll jump forward in time today and a good portion of the text next week. And then again in verse 24, he jumps 
back in time and continues the story where he left off. In the middle of this chapter today, we're going to see a sort of literary parenthesis into the future in which he gives examples from more recent history to demonstrate the extent to which the adversaries of Israel would go to stop the work as well as to show how long that it lasts. This week, as I was writing this portion of the sermon, my youngest son, Judah, was next to me working on some science homework. And the topic of his study was seeds and how they grow into flowers and vegetables and trees and so forth. At one point, he asked me a question about the acorn seed and what it turns into when it's fully grown. And so we walked over to the window and looked out and we found an oak tree. I pointed one out to him. And as you might guess, uh, he marveled at what a small thing can turn into over time, how this little acorn can grow into this mighty oak tree. And I love how children see the world in this way. Ezra is wanting to help his people see over time how they've encountered and dealt with many of these issues and how over time they've grown. This discouragement, fear, and bribery that we read at the end of the text last week in verse 5 would keep growing, eventually turning into a massive oak-like campaign of government manipulation and political oppression. But chapter 4 is intended for more than just a thematic survey of post-exilic oppression. I want to discuss to you your audience for just a minute, or we'll say Ezra's audience. To this point in our study, we've discussed authorship, but I haven't said very much about to whom Ezra was writing. This book isn't written to those who returned in 539 B.C. That would be Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the heads of fathers' houses. Ezra's audience dates, dates much later, about 80 years later, in 460 B.C. These exiles have returned as part of a second or perhaps a third or even a fourth wave of returnees from various parts of the former Babylonian, now Persian, empire. Now, what is his subject matter? Ezra's return to Jerusalem about 80 years after wave one, so that at this point the rebuilding of the temple was long over with. The big project during the entirety of Ezra's day was building the walls of the city of Jerusalem. You can see this in verse 12 of today's text. They are rebuilding the walls of that wicked and rebellious city, it is claimed. Nehemiah would return 13 years after Ezra to supervise the rebuilding work, and he improves on it quite a bit. We'll get to that when we reach Nehemiah. But all for this purpose, the audience, the subject matter, for what purpose? This latter wave of exiles can look back, as we have these last several weeks, to see the renewal of the Old Testament worship in the days of the first wave of returnees was successful and that the temple foundation was laid without the help of the locals. They can also see that for all the efforts of piety and holiness that this first wave of exiles took, it doesn't really look like God blessed them very much. Ever since 
that first wave of returnees said, no, we won't let you build with us, they have nothing but trouble. Remember, I told you, the beginning of chapter 4, for the rest on until the end of Nehemiah, it's nothing but wars and rumors of wars. Hopefully, you can see why Ezra's fast forward in today's text would be helpful to his original audience. They're dealing with their own present day woes. They're not at the end of the conflict, but they're not at the beginning. They're somewhere in the middle. And Ezra comes alongside of them and in effect says, Brothers, you realize we've been dealing with this for about 80 years now. Listen to what happened in former days. God did allow his enemies to ultimately stop the worship of the rebuilding of the temple. He he allowed them to... No, wait. He didn't do that. God didn't allow the temple work to cease. Look, you've got a, a finished temple. So what? We're facing conflict. Look at these letters. Look, I've got a list of letters that were given to me, copies of even one of them. These are accusations that have been made at us throughout this entire process. Brothers, is God going to give up on us? No, our God is faithful. And he will see the work done. I also mentioned last week that opposition to our work here in Anderson County is likely to increase in the coming years. With all the news over this last week of Republicans in Congress trying to fluff the feathers of the liberal turkey costumes that they've been hiding in their closets all these years, it's hard not to think that that time may be sooner rather than later. But church, I want you to steal this in your mind. The words of the Lord Jesus from John 17. He said, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Just as I am not of this world. We are ambassadors of the word of God. And the world will not take kindly to our faithfulness and our efforts to spread it. Any talk of collaboration with the lost is their baited hook to us. It's not a shared ministry that they want, but ultimately total control. If you have the courage to say, no, you have no part with us in this ministry, they're not going to drop it. Opposition will go from veiled... Maybe those passive-aggressive forms you might think of if you look at verse 5, but on into an all-out assault on the church of Jesus. And we'll see some Old Testament examples of that today. Let me remind you of something crucial for our struggle for godliness and sanctification and evangelism and piety and reformation and covenant-keeping county. Jesus does not win in the end. Jesus Christ does not win in the end, beloved. No, Jesus Christ has already won. Jesus Christ is already the victor. All that is left is the gates of hell to come crashing down. The Bible promises us that they will not withstand the church of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Though we might feel like the exiles of Ezra's day, 
who are tempted to think that their sufferings were a sign of God's displeasure and perhaps the worst sufferings ever. This is nothing new, and we are still taking ground through Him who strengthens us. So, after a lengthy introduction and some background information, let's get into the text for this morning. I want to begin by looking at verses 5 through 10. Now, the challenging point of this morning's sermon is so far we've been thinking about the context of Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the first wave of exiles. But since Ezra's fast-forwarding us into the future, trying to encourage his original audience, I want you to begin to think in those terms. To To follow the flow of the text, I need you to this week and next week jump forward in time. Start the ignition of your mental DeLorean, get it up to 88 miles an hour using all 1.21 gigawatts of your cognitive energy, and I want you to go back to the future of Ezra's day about 450 B.C. Let's do a brief flyover of these verses that I just mentioned. In verse 5, last week, we concluded with a reference to the time period of King Cyrus through King Darius. Verse 6 is a jump forward in time. He's jumping forward about 50 years, and he speaks of a specific accusation written during the reign of Hashuerus. That's his Persian name. The Greek name is Xerxes, and that's from about 486 to 465 when Xerxes ruled. Nothing more is mentioned about the charge given in verse 6. This is one example he's presenting. He says, And in the reign of Hashuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation. Okay, so he gives this accusation, he mentions it, but there's nothing more that's said about it. I wondered, as I wrote the sermon this week, because you know Hashuerus married a bride of Jewish descent. I wonder if Queen Esther had something to do with settling down that controversy. In verse 7, Ezra moves us forward another 30 years or so, right into the days of Artaxerxes. Here, another letter was written with the attestation of three names. You see Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabiel. But we have no additional information about this letter either. That's all he says. One letter here, jump forward another 30 years. Here's another letter. What's the purpose of these little short stories That Ezra's giving us. I want you to imagine for a minute a man who's been falsely accused of a crime walking into his lawyer's office to discuss the details of his case. Upon entering, he lets out a sigh and begins to lament how all this mess got started. The lawyer looks back at his client and says, You know, I've been doing this for a long time, I've handled a number of cases of false accusation. Let me give you a few examples. And he goes to his filing cabinet and pulls out several and says, here's one and here's another and here's another. Look, here's the most recent case that I'm working on. I can give you some detail on that one. This is essentially what Ezra is doing for these exiles. He's reminding them of how many times this has happened before and how God has continued to see them through. Let's look then at the details of the case presented in verse 8 and following. We see a third letter, this one written to Artaxerxes, not the same letter that was mentioned in verse 7, mind you, since the names of the writers are clearly different. 
Starting in verse 8 and running through chapter 6, verse 18, we have a rare occurrence in the Bible where a third language, not Hebrew or Greek, but Aramaic is used in the writing of the inspired word of God. The reason for this change, you can see in verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. Ezra actually provides a written copy in Aramaic of the letter that was sent. And we also get the king's reply later on in this chapter. The Persians did keep good records of provincial correspondences and subsequent legal declarations. Ezra included this letter most likely to show the people of his day, those rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the exact words and accusations of their enemies. So in verses 9 to 10, you have a list of authors and collaborators in this request for the Jews to stop the work. But I want you to notice one phrase in particular. You've got this long list, Rehum and Shimshai and all their associates, judges, governors, officials, Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, the Elamites. But in verse 10, they had this interesting phrase. And the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. Picture for just a minute Ezra's readers seeing the actual letter written to the king of Persia from people they know to be their enemies getting this kind of intel. You can probably imagine some perturbation that the Samaritans would make such audacious claims without presenting any evidence of sedition. We talked for the last few weeks about the temptation to fear. But think for just a minute when they read this last phrase. The rest of the nations are out to get us. A common fear-fueled response to opposition of any kind is to begin thinking that everyone's against me. This feeling could come from the defamation of Persian-supporting provincial officials, or perhaps for some of us, like a rebuke from your spouse, or your children not submitting to your correction, or your siblings pointing out that every time you're doing something wrong, or getting honked at when you don't see the light change, or getting pulled over by a police officer, so on and so forth. Anytime we face opposition, what's immediately going to come into our minds? What Satan, what tactic might his slander take? Man, everybody's out to get you. Everybody's out to get you. The whole world is against me. The smear campaign that the devil is running, which by the way, his campaigns of slander are always vague. He generalizes the problem to make us think that it is worse than it is. And it's always based on a half-truth or just flat-out lies. In addition to our own fear and the enemy's slander, we have doubts to deal with as well as our own insecurities. When we are in situations where it's as if we're holding a letter in front of us that says, 
all the nations are against you. What weapon or tool has God given the Christian to fight in those moments? How do we stay victorious in Christ? What can we use to surmount these seemingly insurmountable challenges? I would put it in the words of Puritan writer Jeremiah Burroughs. We can fight these doubts and insecurities and slanders and fears with the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Have you ever wondered why you struggle with fear and doubt and insecurity and give in so often to the enemy's ridiculous stories? Could it be because you have to this point set your hope of security so fully on things you don't have? I haven't acquired this yet. I haven't attained to that yet. Burroughs defines Christian contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I get this letter, all this list of names, and then everybody else. The whole world is against me. But I delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in this condition. It's not wrong that these exiles wanted to be justified of the false claims that were made against them by the locals. But worrying about what was being said about them isn't going to solve the problem. If they worry about it and then they even get what they want, they're justified, something else is going to come up. Beloved, for some of you, this could be the very gift in your life that God wants to give you, the gift of true Christian contentment in the midst of your struggles. But you keep overlooking it because the better gift that you want is the deliverance from whatever trial, small or great, you might currently be facing. Yes, I have Christ, but once this thing is resolved, then I can settle down and really enjoy Jesus. And yet, He's trying to give you that contentment gift right now in the midst of your trial. Hear again the words of Mr. Burroughs. This is a mystery to a carnal heart. They think God loves them when he prospers them and makes them rich. But they think that he loves them not when he afflicts them. That is a mystery. But God's grace instructs men in that mystery. Grace enables men to love in the very frown of God's face and so come to receive contentment. You all know that the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. But he too had to be sanctified. At the beginning of 2 Corinthians, which was a letter written towards the beginning of Paul's ministry, comparatively speaking, Paul confesses, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now look here, the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, early in his ministry, felt that God had forsaken him. I, I'm so much in despair, I'd just rather die. God sentenced me to death anyway, why not get it over with? Fast forward a number of years in Paul's ministry, and you find that he's not a complainer anymore. What had God taught him through how much he suffered for the sake of God's name? Acts chapter 9, verse 16. Beloved, God had taught Paul the secret. What secret? Inarguably, one of the most misquoted passages in the Bible, we get this absolute gem. Paul says in Philippians 4, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, here it is, I've learned the secret. The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now notice what the text tells us. In Philippians 4, Paul didn't throw touchdowns and win championships through him who strengthens him. He didn't get his spouse pregnant or pay off his credit cards or ace the test through him who strengthens him. But notice this. It goes deeper than maybe even a cursory reading. He learned the secret to overcoming the challenges of any season. Plenty or hunger. Abundance or need, how? Through contentment in Christ. Beloved, seasons of plenty and hunger each have their challenges. In a season of plenty, you might have a temptation towards pride, towards feeling like you've got it all together. In a season of want, you might despair. You might cry out. How do you avoid pride in the seasons of plenty? Contentment in Jesus. What about the seasons of affliction where it feels like all the nations are against me in trying to build a family or a business or church or a community for Jesus Christ? What got Paul through? The rare jewel of Christian contentment. I want you to consider where you are in life right now. Are you in a season of plenty or want? Some of our women have just had babies or are getting ready to have babies, and we have some that have recently lost babies. We know that joy in any of those situations is not a given, regardless, in plenty or in want. Where does real satisfaction come from? It comes from contentedness in Jesus. What about those of you who want to move to Anderson County? or are moving, or within the last 24 hours, moved. 
Praise the Lord. There's a ton of things to do, including fixing water lines. But even in that moment, contentment in Christ will allow you to triumph. So you didn't make it to the evangelism. Do you feel like a complete failure and a waste of atoms and protoplasm? You don't think people at this church get you or want to be around you. Rather, they seem out to get you. You still can't find that spouse or nail down that extra income to make the mortgage work or find joy in the face of that one very difficult child. I feel like I've received the sentence of death. All the world is out to get me. Beloved, and this is good news, but it is a hard word. You have not then yet learned the secret of Christian contentment. Burroughs, again, says that contentment is not by addition, but by subtraction. Seeking to add a thing will not bring contentment. Instead, subtracting from your desires until you are satisfied with only Christ brings contentment. This is why we fast. This is why Jesus said, when you fast, because he knows our hearts are so craven, we're going to want to add more stuff. I'll be happy if I have that dinner. I'll be happy if I get the dessert at lunch today. I'll be happy if I have that beer in the evenings. Whatever. These appetites in us, crave and crave and crave. And so Jesus expects that we will remove things from our lives so we can remember, oh, that's right. I have everything I need in him. So the returned exiles had the rest of the nations against them in this rebuilding. So what? Did they have God on their side? Yes. And that is enough. This morning you sang... Complete in thee, each need supplied, and no good thing to me denied. Since thou my portion, Lord, will be, I ask no more, complete in thee. That's Christian contentment. And yes, beloved, yes, hear me when I say this, you can have it. You can. Don't let Satan tell you you'll never get there. You can have true Christian contentment in Christ. Jesus and his victory on the cross promises us that we can be content in him. So if you can't move to AC yet, or have another child, or be part of this ministry or that thing, you can still be content. Think about subtraction in order to add. Get alone with God. Get your house in order. Line up the means of providing for your family. And then look to God for all that you think you're missing, finding that you have missed Him this whole time. And if you find that, you've still found something very, very good. Because repentance is a great place to start. Well, let's look at verses 11 through 16, and we'll conclude the text this morning. This is going to be the contents of that third letter. You see... In verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that they sent. Here, Ezra allows the inhabitants of the land to speak for themselves. Remember that these are the ancestors of those who, during Cyrus's reign, professed their undying love for the God of Israel. 
We worship your God as you do from chapter 4, verse 2. In verse 11, they open their letter to Artaxerxes with a common greeting, and then they begin their spin game. They call the city of Jerusalem, by the way, whose God they claim to worship and for whom they initially offered to collaborate in the building work, a wicked and rebellious city. Wait a sec, which city? The one several years ago you wanted to help build so you could worship God? That God? That city? Are we talking about the same place? Same God? Next, in verse 13, they twist the, you're going to lose some taxes, screw. If you don't do something now, Artaxerxes, that Christmas bonus for your in-laws and the HR department is out the window. Just a brief aside, honest question. Had they been able to build with Zerubbabel and be a part of this worship and the pollution, ultimately, of the true worship of Yahweh, would the idea of the king of Persia losing tax money have really mattered to them? But they were denied, and so now they want their plum chum friend, the king, to not miss out on his IRS hall. Then they go to flattery, telling the king that he means so much to them that they don't want to lose their privilege of being in his good graces, and they would be so ashamed to see his dishonor. Now that sounds an awful lot to me, like the chief priest's response to Pilate when he asked them, shall I crucify your king? And they answered, we have no king but Caesar. And the point of this letter is then revealed in verse 15, where a request is made to investigate the history of this nasty place. The claim that is made is that this city has a history of rebellion, and that is why it was laid waste, which is only partially true. We know that Israel was in rebellion, but it was not to any king or man, but it was to God. And that's why they had to receive the rod of correction. The letter concludes with what amounts to a threat to the king, that he will lose the territory ultimately unless he does something rather quick. Now, having read the letter to you this way, and I don't think it's too far from how Ezra's people might have read it, how do you feel? And remember, this is for posterity. Perhaps you feel one of three ways. A disdain towards the inner workings of government. You might be thinking, boy, things haven't changed much throughout history, have they? I want to warn you this morning, beloved. Guarding your heart against a bitter stance towards the government. In Ambrose Bierce's The Devil's Dictionary, the entry for government reads, and I think this is a pretty accurate way of the way a modern Christian might think about the government. The entry reads that the government is a modern Kronos. In Greek mythology, Kronos was the father of Zeus, who was said to have fathered many other children other than Zeus, but he ate them all. Bierce goes on to say that the priesthood of the government, that would be the government officials, are charged with the duty of preparing the people for the teeth of Cronus. 
The government exists to devour. It exists to consume. It exists to destroy. That's the way that perhaps many Christians in America today feel about the government. Nothing but revulsion. I would remind you that the government, even in Ezra's day, was, and we should remember still is, one of God's gifts to mankind and one of the three main spheres of sovereignty of authority. Don't so quickly forget that this government, the one getting played by the Samaritans right now, is also the one that God used to set his people free from captivity and send them back to the promised land with all their goods and treasures, restoring their fortunes and then some. We have to repent if we find it in our hearts of the hatred of the government. We can try to reform it. We can certainly try and reduce it. And we can try and replace its current leadership. But we must not, because God gave it as a gift, reject the idea of government. To do so is to tell God that we don't like his gifts. And we don't even like his deacons. Because you know that the government official is God's deacon, his servant. That's literal Greek word. It's his deacon. Servant for our good. With the upcoming election, I want to talk a little bit more about government next week when we read the king's response letter. But the second thing I ask you, if you see inside it, you today, when you read this letter, is an anger or resentment or even all-out hatred of your enemies. You can imagine Ezra's readers finishing this letter and wanting to punch a hole in a sheetrock wall, though sheetrock won't be invented for another 2,400 years. You can probably sympathize with them too. Is that how you feel when somebody gives you their side of the story and leaves you no opportunity to tell yours? Do you harbor bitterness towards them? Do you try and avoid them? Do you refuse to pray for them? For every 10 negative thoughts you easily conjure up about them, have you even tried to conjure up one positive? Brothers and sisters, may I remind you that we are forbidden by Christ to hate our enemies? I am interested in harmonizing the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament as clearly as we can. But we have to deal with our Lord's words when he said, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I get that we are to hate sin, even the garment stained by the flesh. I understand that we are to cast out the unbeliever from our midst and protect the pure worship of God. I understand that we are to watch out for wolves and the shepherds of the flock are even, if necessary, to lay down their lives for the sheep in defense against the wolves. What I can't understand is how anyone could be in Christ. Get to the end of this section of the Sermon on the Mount and go to bed at night refusing to repent of hatred in their heart towards another image bearer of God. Our church doesn't do abortion ministry because we hate the abortionist and we want to see him damned. What he or she does is evil, and we ought to hate it because God does. 
But we do abortion ministry because we want to see the abortionist saved. And in that man or woman's conversion, we're also stopping abortions. Why did Jesus tell us to love our enemies anyway? He goes on to say, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, so you ought to act like your father. Well, how does our father act? Well, he makes his son rise on both the evil and the good. And he sends his reign on both the just and the unjust. If we acted the way that we think God should act, if we acted the way that we imagine God to act, if God so hated his enemies that he gave them immediately what they deserved and offered them not even a second to reconsider their ways, what hope would any of us here have had of salvation? Remember in Romans 5, Paul said, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God in Christ is calling every one of us in Christ to mimic this behavior in order to see more of God's elect children who are currently his enemies brought into the kingdom. Perhaps today, beloved, you need to repent of an ongoing hatred of the lost or of some government official or what would be far worse, a brother or sister in Christ. Don't put it off, brothers. Don't put it off, sisters. Don't put it off, young ones. For you remember the words of our Lord Jesus when he said, For with the judgment you pronounce, you also will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Lastly, having read this letter, written by the Samaritans. Do you see that these Samaritans handled this controversy the entirely wrong way? Do you see that they fumbled it? They bumbled this whole thing? Consider again Ezra's audience. They finish reading the letter. Some in the company are angry and bitter and ready to fight. Some are rolling their eyes at these modern politics. And there are some in the assembly who just wish that people would come and talk to them about their disagreements rather than tattletaling. You might feel that way. If these Samaritans wanted to worship God, couldn't they have taken the no you can't as a sign that they were outside the covenant family of God and that they needed a mediator who would come between them and God to bring them into the covenant? What if they had gone to the exiles and told them of their desire to say no to the idols and worship only the living and the true God? Would the people have sent them perhaps to Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8 where Solomon prayed, this is so good. Solomon prayed, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake. For, listen to what he says, they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he, that foreigner, 
comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which that foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know that your name, that they may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Do you see the open arms in that? The welcome, come, worship God with us. God already made provision for them to be a part of the worship. They needed to repent. Why did they have to stay hard in their hearts and continue in their pluralistic worship and write a slanderous letter to a pagan king? Well, brothers and sisters, I might ask you why Christians today do the exact same thing. When you have conflict in your house or at your place of work, or at your church, or in your community? Do you repent of your part, and as Jesus taught us in Matthew 18, go and reason with your brother? Or, children, do you go and tell mommy about what brother did? Do you go and tell your friends about what your wife said, and her gossipy behavior? Do you go and tell a friend from a previous church about the sins of your current church? Or do you tell people at your current church all about the sins of your previous church? Do you get online and write up a biased, one-sided report of all that has happened to you and lay it out there for all the nations to see? Effectively trying to settle your disputes as a Christian in the sight of the pagan nations. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not be so. Jesus taught us that our conflicts are best settled as quickly and directly and discreetly as possible. There's three points for you. You needed three points in a sermon? There it is. Settle your disputes quickly, directly, and discreetly as possible. Too quickly, Jesus said, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, stop worshiping God and leave your gift at the altar. And go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, Jesus says. The world today says stuff like, time heals all wounds. That's baloney. A period for tempers to calm down is sometimes necessary. But we should not just try and hope that it'll fix itself. Because over time, it usually doesn't. And this ultimately is the spirit of cowardice in us. Uh, let's just... Give it some time. See if it fixes itself. No, that's not what Jesus taught us. Go and solve the problem. Go to them. Number two, directly. Jesus again says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Matthew 18, verse 15. Notice you don't go to someone else. You don't go directly to your spouse or others. You go directly to the offender and address them frankly about it. None of the ballerina-like passive-aggressive stuff you know, sometimes people get offended when... No, 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 no. You tell them the sin. Look, here's what just happened. I see in the scriptures that this is sin. I want to bring this to you. Why are we afraid? 
Why are we afraid to obey Christ? Quickly, directly, lastly, discreetly. Our Lord continues, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The point here is to keep the conflict to the smallest concentric circle possible. As the people of Jesus, we are not yet free from sin. But we have been given a way to deal with that sin in a way that protects both parties involved, the offender and the offended, protect our families, our church, and our communities as a whole. Now, had the Samaritans taken this advice, it would have gone much better for them. You can already see where this New Testament animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans comes from. It comes from right here and not dealing with these conflicts the correct way. Brothers and sisters, let's not be the same. At the beginning of this morning's sermon, I mentioned the USSR and the campaign to hide the atrocities of a communist dictatorship. There were, and still are, a number of Christians in Russia who never saw the end of Soviet control. The history that they knew was erased and all of their lives, they were slandered and counted as enemies of the state. And there are some similarities to the situation of the Jews in Ezra's day. But as the St. Brendan Academy School song says, we'll be all right if the Lord be on our side. And the Lord, He's on our side. Jeremiah Burroughs has a similar sentiment when he says, Be sure of your call to every business you go about. Though it is the least business, be sure of your call to it. Then whatever you meet with, you may quiet your heart with this. I know I'm doing what God would have me. Nothing in the world will quiet the heart so much as this. When I meet with any cross, I know I am where God would have me. In my place and calling, I am about the work that God has sent me. This is exactly what Ezra's people were doing. God has called us to rebuild. We're rebuilding. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. No matter what difficulties we face, no matter how they grow over time, we're doing what God has for us to do. So brothers and sisters, go forth today. Put your hand to the very next obedience that God puts in front of you. And be content that you are walking in his will at this very moment. That's enough. Tomorrow can worry about itself. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that your word would help us to be obedient to you in Christ and that we would be more conformed to his image and that the number of things perhaps through your spirit that you have convicted your people about, you would make them quick to repent of. If there are relationships in this church that are broken, that they would be quickly restored or if there are conversations that need to happen outside of this church, that those conversations would happen and relationships would be quickly mended and that we would build 
knowing that no matter what opposition we face, whether it be from outside our church or even difficulties and differences within or even our own physical maladies, the things that we're afflicted with, we would be settled with contentment that knowing in Christ we are complete. We have everything that we need in him and that we would work heartily as unto him and bring glory to his name. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.